This is a special edition of Taste, a St. Patrick's Day edition of Taste. And the reason why it is so special is that our guest today is Neil O'Dowd. And Neil is one of the founding fathers of Irish American Publishing. He founded Irish American Magazine, Irish Voice, Irish Central, Home and Away. And it's personal for me because I got my start writing in the pages of the Irish Voice as the music columnist from 1997 till about 2015. I was a nobody. I wrote into the paper asking for a job. They took me in and the rest is history. There would be no taste podcast. There would be no writing career for me if it wasn't for this man taking a chance at me. And I should also mention his lovely wife, Debbie McGoldrick. Now, you're going to hear in this podcast a lot of ribbing. We're going to go after each other mercilessly about our age or our weight or whatever. But don't let those sharp elbows fool you. There's a lot of love and respect and admiration between the two of us. That's just the way Irish guys are with one another. So here is a special edition of Taste. All right, well, here we are at another podcast episode of Taste, and we have really just the ultimate taste maker here in Niall O'Dowd. He's a Tipperary man, and he is a journalist who has founded just some of the bedrock publications that inform Irish America, the Irish Voice, Irish America Magazine, Home and Away Newspaper, the Irish Central website, which he founded in 2009, of which Taste, the podcast and the blog sits. And he's talking to us today because he has written a number of excellent books, including Lincoln and the Irish and A New Ireland. And he is now tackling George Washington in his new book. Niall, welcome to Taste. Well, thank you very much. There's a great taste of it already. <laughs> there is indeed, like. Well, oh. you know, I have to say, uh, you know, you have a lot of great literary achievements, but by far the one that is my favorite, uh, if I could be a bit self-serving for a second, is the foreword of my, this is your brain on Shamrock's book. And I, oh, that's I, right. I bring this up because I have to tell you, hand to God, behind your back, I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and said, You're, this forward is not only the greatest forward ever written, but it's a hell of a lot better than anything that was in the rest of the book. <laughs> so I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read that. Okay. So okay. Mike Farraher is not the kind of guy you'd want at your wedding, funeral, or bachelor party, but you'd want to read his book. He's too observant for his own good, and he will catch the funny moment whenever you least expect it. It makes great reading unless you're the subject. The bride drops her drawers, Michael catch it. The coffin falls out of the hearse, Michael be there, gimlet eye seeing all. Then he'll toss off some devastating riff on your wedding, funeral, etc., and you'll be shamed for life, and that's it. Mike is mean, green, what is it, else does it say here? Now, yeah, Mike is your brain on Shamrock's an Irish kid from New Jersey who bleeds green, knows the scene, and is funny and mean. And I've been trying to live up to that forward ever since, so. I think you were born like that, Mike. You had two disadvantages, Jersey and Irish. Yes. So let's take on the first hard-hitting uh, literary question, because this is Taste, the uh, food culture podcast. 
uh, George Washington had wooden teeth. So what would you serve him if he came for dinner at your house? I guess a roast that he could gum. Is that what you would do? Or how would I that go? Just give him soup, you know, it's <laughs> a big pot of Irish soup. Soup is safe. Yeah, soup is safe. So kind of, this is what they ate in the famine. So the, <laughs> make sure the brown bread wasn't too crusty because you could lose it. Right, yeah, you could lose yeah. a wooden tooth on that. So tell me a little bit about why George Washington and the Irish and why now? Well, it was interesting. I wrote a book called Lincoln and the Irish um, because I think there's a tremendous amount of hidden history about our tribe that has never been written. And a lot of it had to do with prejudice and an awful lot of it had to do with the fact that most of the people who came from Ireland in the 17th, 18th and 19th century were basically illiterate and never got to write their own stories in their own book. So in the course of doing the Lincoln book, it became obvious that there was a tremendous hidden Irish element in his life, including everybody around him in the White House, where they were referred to as the Hibernian clique by a major journalist. And I'm not talking about policy officers, but the, the doorman, the guy who drove his carriage, the guy who was did uh, police work for him, protection. All those sort of characters were all from Ireland. And when he would go to the old soldier's home uh, during the hot summers where he wrote the Emancipation Proclamation, the old soldiers were all Irish. Over half of them were Irish because they would have been injured in the war and they weren't old at all. They were 35 or 40, maybe at the most. Mm -hmm. And they had nowhere to go because they had emigrated and they had no roots or family who could take care of them. So he would sit amid all these Irish who were all speaking Gaelic and he'd go and write his Emancipation Proclamation. Um, so it was just a, an attempt to show that the hidden history of the Irish and Lincoln the book got a tremendous reception, mainly because I was told early on that the two books that sell, no matter what they are, are books about Lincoln and books about dogs. So my next book is Lincoln and the, uh, his Irish Wolfhound. <laughs> that would be a big seller. Well, I think this goes back to something that I would imagine has been sort of a mission of yours for quite some time, and that is just tell Irish stories that people wouldn't know about and yeah. really giving a voice to an Irish voice to our culture and, and our, our mark that we have on America. So uh, talk to me about the very beginning when you just went to San Francisco and started a paper and uh, was that kind of a mission of yours back then? And, and how has that, is that expressing itself now? Well, I was always fascinated with America as a kid. Uh, you know, I think a kid's growing up today and what they see coming from America, like Donald Trump or whatever. I saw the moon landing. I saw Muhammad Ali. I saw this amazing country um, that I, John F. Kennedy, when he came to Ireland, that totally transformed. Everything. Yeah, and, and he's definitely speaking the truth, guy, because this guy is older than turf. <laughs> <laughs> I'm usually drawing. I'd, I'd, I'd hate to cut the rings, uh, cut you in half and count those rings. I'd, 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 I'd lose fingers and toes on that. My God. Uh, I, was, I was alive when Lincoln was shot. So <laughs> you told John Wilkes Booth, don't do it. <laughs> I said, let's just go for a drink and forget about it. Um, anyway. No, no, but you know, the, the, the characters, I mean, Thomas Francis Marr, there's a great biography of him, the immortal Irishman. 
but he was in favor of African American uh, uh, being allowed to vote. He was he, he was an incredibly progressive character for his time. But all we ever heard was that the Irish were racist, that they were this, about that. And in fact, you know, so many gave their life uh, fighting for the Union, which meant fighting against slavery. And I think their story was very under underestimated. So when I finished Lincoln, uh, obviously people said to me, well, you should do Washington because there are two iconic presidents of the era. And again, you find these amazing characters hidden from history which um, really kind of made me think that we've never really examined our history like we should. I mean, there's a guy called uh, Charles Thompson. Charles Thompson came over, a Presbyterian, but a, an Irish Republican in the best sense, came over on the boat from Ireland, from County Tyrone, and on the way over, his father died on the boat. So he landed in America as an orphan, a most unpromising start. And yet he went on to become the man who was secretary of the Second Continental Congress, who was the official chosen to bring the official word to George Washington that he had just been elected president. And both Washington and the Second Continental Congress felt that he was the right man with the right stature to do that. Now you think of that journey from being an orphan on the docks in, in New York City and then becoming the man who but then he goes, he goes even deeper. I mean, the guy just was a transformational figure in so many ways. And there's lots of characters like that that I get into that I had never heard of, but who were huge figures of their, of their time. Yeah, for sure. And listen, you're definitely a figure of our time as well. I think one of the things that uh, as, as a reader of the paper, prior to being an employee of the paper, that's right. And we didn't get you soon enough. <laughs> you had 18 years to sack me and you didn't do it. You're anyway. to you. <laughs> I took, I finally got the hint. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, all kidding aside, I, I think, you know, as a reader, a subscriber of the paper, eventually an employee of the paper and following the journey of the paper and then eventually irishcentral.com. I mean, you've definitely been a major political figure from an unlikely beginning yourself. I mean, just and not a lot of money going to San Francisco, heading west, starting a paper, starting a media empire, and eventually being uh, an advisor and somebody that helped broker the Good Friday Peace Agreement. Are you looking for your job back with all these nice words? <laughs> you see, this is it. This is this is this is why we never got a lot of work done together. But anyway. <laughs> What I wanted to share, all you know, just to really acknowledge you, is that I think that it's always been the place of your media outlets to to give a voice to immigrants that were hiding on McLean Avenue in Yonkers, waiting for their visas, um, championing that in Washington, uh, brokering the Good Friday Peace Agreement. It, it's been an amazing journey, and I think. The Irish voice has definitely been there for for all parts of that. So, I think that you're also a, a major you know, major part of our history in terms of you being on the sign lines and reporting that and speaking truth to power where necessary. So, do you see that as a responsibility of viewers uh, as you've launched these different media outlets? Well, what I see is that in your lifetime you encounter issues of paramount importance to you. 
and through my political and uh, journalistic background, I, I was very, very interested in the Irish-American response to the troubles in Northern Ireland, because I always felt there was a hidden part of that that was ready to be sprung at some point and could become a major part of it, because I believe strongly that the British were more afraid of America getting involved than they were of the IRA campaign continuing. And the other one was immigration, because I was an immigrant myself, an undocumented M1 for two years. And it was nothing like as bad as it was later. But when I came to New York, the flood of immigrants from Ireland in the mid-1980s was phenomenal. And of course, unlike the 50s immigrants and the 20s immigrants, they had nowhere to go. They had nowhere to work. They couldn't improve their lives like it was so easy for other people to do. So I became an advocate for that. And that led to the Morrison visas, which uh, allowed 40,000 Irish to get visas and then the Donnelly visas for another 40,000. That was a tremendous victory, but it was only a part of victory because unfortunately the issue of immigration has become so deeply mired an antagonistic one now in the American mindset that if you talk about immigration, people start talking about the Mexican border and that's the only immigration that matters. Uh, whereas this country is in danger of losing its, its wonderful rainbow hue of people from different countries adding to the, to the melting pot, creating new ethnic identities, which is the greatness of this country. This country is an idea. Everybody came from somewhere else and they had the idea to come here. And I think that's the, the most paramount lesson I learned is that this country really shapes you as you want to be shaped. You don't, like in Ireland, when I was growing up, if you were a lawyer, if you were the son of a lawyer, you became a lawyer. If you were the son of a doctor, you became a doctor. If you were the son of a laborer, you became a laborer. There was no movement at all within the social strata. Whereas when you come to the States, you pretty much like I did, just set off for San Francisco. I didn't know anyone. Uh, I hadn't heard of anyone over there. I just went to work for an Irish construction company and raised enough money to start a small newspaper. And, you know, people were so help, helpful and giving. And after a week, I went broke, and this guy wrote me a $10,000 check, which in 1989 was, was an incredible, 1979 was an incredible amount of money. So I met so many people like that on the journey. And I think America is best viewed with fresh eyes, but somebody just landing here and seeing the generosity and seeing the decent side of it, rather than what we all see been pounded at us on TV every day, which is this division and rancor and hate. It's actually a magnificent country and I owe it everything. Amazing. Well, you've definitely paid it back. When you think about some of the things you've covered in the Irish Voice, Irish Central, Irish America, Home and Away, in fact, sometimes you were news yourself because, again, as, you know, during the Good Friday Peace Agreement, you were there. Uh, when you look at the accomplishments of the, of the change you've been able to affect through the words in your publications, what, what would you say would be some of the things you're most proud of and, and what were some of the maybe low moments of, uh, of, of this journalistic career you've had? Uh, my proudest moment was apart uh, from apart from of course discovering me but that that's <laughs> you know which I which I will take to my grave as my grave <laughs> my headstone will say I discovered Mike Farrar <laughs> sorry unfortunately <laughs> 
So, so what are those high, high highs and, and low lows and in, in, in what you've been able the to The highs were working on the peace process being the intermediary between the IRA and the Clinton government for three years and seeing the outworking of all that. And then the, at the point where Jerry Adams got a visa to come to America, which was a huge factor in the subsequent IRA ceasefire. So if you ask me, what was my greatest moment? It was the IRA ceasefire the 31st of August, 1994. And after 35 years of the troubles, I had a role to play, a small role to play in creating that dynamic that led to the ceasefire. I, I was the person who first approached then Governor Clinton in Arkansas and asked him, would he be interested in working on Irish issues? And then I worked closely with Sinn Féin when they were edging their way towards peace and trying to get the White House to work with them and eventually securing the visa for Jerry Adams and then working ahead on that and getting the ceasefire. So that was a profound moment for me because that was history, but it was also just thinking, and we can all see today, when, when the wars happened, the horrific things that happened. And we can't deny that happened in Northern Ireland too. Kids were blown up. People, innocent people were blown up on both sides. The wrong people were killed. There were death squads. And bringing, helping bring an end to all that was a very proud moment for me. And having said that, my worst moment was about a year afterwards, the breakdown in the IRA ceasefire. When suddenly everything that we seemed to have built up had come apart. But fortunately, very fortunately, it got put back together again by a wonderful American called George Mitchell. And it became really an example to the world. The Good Friday Agreement is probably the greatest document in how to bring about peace in a country that's ever been written because it manages to balance the interests of the two antagonists very, very fairly to have them share power, to have them deal with each other and I know it's not perfect and people still say the North is a problem, but Mike, there's nobody been killed anymore. There's no bodies found. There's no turning on your radio in the morning and hearing a body has been found on a lonely road in County Armagh. All that is gone. So those are my best and my worst moments combined together. I think another one of my best moments was when we finally got the Morrison visas and 40,000 young Irish people were able to step out of the shadows and live the lives that they were capable of and, and the careers that they very much wanted to have rather than working in construction or whatever was open to them. So I think, you know, those are the memories I have most of all of what was great. And I have some very, very strange, sad memories. I remember one story that has always impacted me it was a 23-year-old Irish immigrant who hung himself in the park in the Bronx with 23 cents in his pocket. And for some reason, that story really grabbed me in terms of what that kid went through for that to happen to him. So you get that as well. And uh, it's, it's a community. It's got the ups and the downs. It's got the comedians like you. It's got, it's got people who, you know, even what you do is make, making a difference in terms of just broadening the whole aspect of Irish America because it once was very narrow, as you know. And it was about the parade and it was about gays marching and all that. And somehow all that has been swept away and we're in a much better place. And if you look at Ireland and you look at the fact that they have gay rights, that they allow abortion, that they had a referendum on marriage and divorce, and the country has just leaped forward 
So it's been a very good time to be Irish in America because you see all that progress on both sides of the Atlantic. And I've been very lucky in that respect. Yeah, and it's, it, it's so meteoric, isn't it? Because I remember, you know, I'm, I'm in my 50s, so that's, you know, it's not that much of a, a big swatch of time. But in my lifetime, I remember going over to, to Ireland in the 70s and my father and mother through their overtime tips would have put every pole on the road leading into the uh, a wire into my grandmother's house. They were the ones that paid for those poles to have a telephone line be put into their to, to put into their parents' homes because there was just such a pull to not just write and communicate on onion paper, but to to bring technology there. And now, when you look at Ireland today, Ireland is actually you know leading the way in terms of technology and had the latest cell phones 4G before we did, you know, that kind of thing. So just even in our lifetime, the, the seismic. Yeah, we skipped the whole industrial age. We went from to farming agriculture straight into Facebook and Apple and, you know, the world headquarters, the European headquarters of Google are in Dublin. We have five of the top six multinationals there. Um, I mean, it's, it's been a, an utter transformation and I put it down to one thing which I was a beneficiary of, they have a very good educational system. They teach you the basics. I mean, they, I was brought up in Catholic school, obviously, and there's a lot to be said for and against, but I'd, I'd say that it, it matches anything in terms of just teaching you the basics and going out into the world prepared to use those basic skills. Amen, and we'll be right back. An inviting smile. That's what people hear in my voice, and that's usually the tone that people want associated with their brand. Sure, I can steam up the windows with a sexy cadence. Even that can be delivered with a smile. You need a girl next door? I'm your girl. Commercials, narrations, explainer videos, even phone systems. I'll bring the smile to your brand. Check out my brand new website, smilingvoice.com. Okay, we're back with Niall O'Dowd, the founder of Irish America, Irish Voice, Home and Away, Irish Central, prolific author. Uh, when you're not writing, and since this is kind of a low-key food podcast as well, uh, where in New York and where back home does Niall O'Dowd get his feed, his Irish feed? What are some of the your favorite restaurants in the in on both sides of the Atlantic? Well, I'll tell you, Ireland has just transformed as regards restaurants. Uh, even 10, 15 years ago, you could find it very difficult to get anything other than spuds and, and mash and uh, a good bit of beef or whatever. But now I think you can walk along any of the main thoroughfares and you have your pick at some of the finest restaurants there. I like, there's a very good Italian restaurant called Trocadero in Dublin that I always go to. And there's one right beside the mansion house, which is where Bill and Hillary Clinton went. It's called the fire fire pit or something like that. But I'd be honest, I'm not a great foodie in terms of if I go to restaurants, it's usually just uh, breakfast in a diner. Um, whereas over here, you have such a, New York is such a incredible place for food. And I can't name you five restaurants. That's to tell you how much I know about the food business. I, I still say that the best Chinese meal I've had in a long time was uh, on Shop Street in Galway. And 
you know, the, 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 the Chinese gentleman came up to the table with the full Irish brogue and he's like, would you like the Mugu Gai Pan now? It is gorgeous. <laughs> and you're like, what? Yeah. No, actually, <laughs> but, it, but it has, I, I think, I think one of the things that's been really interesting and in, in, even included in, in the reporting that I, I did for you in the pages over the years is that, you know, Ireland is not only a place that has given us the gift of immigrants and we've obviously helped shape and build the United States, but um, they also have a complicated relationship themselves with immigration into them, into Ireland, right? So well, what has been really interesting has been when I was covering, you know, the Irish music scene for, for you over the years, you know, you had bands like the Afro-Celt Sound System where they would combine uh, Irish Celtic music with African musicians at Peter Gabriel's studios in Bath, England, and they create this sound that you never heard, you know, and, and really the culture, what's been exciting for me is, has been the assimilation of some of those tastes, uh, those, those food items where you, it's really helped elevate, um, you know, chicken curry uh, was yeah. brought was brought over. Chicken curry is in every Irish bar, but it was brought over from the merchants in Wexford. You know, where the hell did kebabs come from? You know, they came from Turkey, I think. Yeah, for when you stagger out of the pub drunk, you used to get fish and chips. Now you get kebabs, which is kind of interesting. But I mean, I agree with you. The range of restaurants and the range of food delicacies is quite extraordinary now yeah. and um, expensive. I mean, Ireland is expensive to eat in, I find, compared to America. It definitely is. I remember going over to, to Limerick once, and this is, again, not too long ago when I said, can I have a ham and cheese sandwich? And they were like, well, we can't do the ham and the cheese together in the sandwich. We can bring you a plate of the ham like and a plate of the cheese, but ne never the twain shall mix like. And now, you know, you've got uh, Gallagher's yeah. Boxty House in Dublin, and you've got some of these other places yeah. that are world renowned to be, you know, major food destinations, which is uh, which is really Again, in, in such a short time, we've always been known as, you know, the ham, the cabbage, you roast and boil everything Very to death. Basic, yeah. Really, I mean, really when basic. I, when I was growing up, going out for a meal was a, a huge occasion. You, you definitely go on a Sunday afternoon to the local hotel for what would be the equivalent of brunch now. But um, that was like a, a heavenly visit, you know, to somewhere that was very posh very different. You'd never see restaurants per se. There'd be hotel dining places really more than anything. So to see the transformation now, I mean, you go to a town like Dingle where my father was born and, you know, they, they had nothing right up until the 1980s. And now there's every good fish restaurant imaginable. And uh, it's just become, you know, of all the countries in the world, I think over the last 25 years, Certainly, in terms of of, our, of Europe, Ireland has transformed more than any of them. Just completely transformed. It is. It's really amazing. So, tell me a little bit about what's uh, what are you gearing up for for Irish Central for the for the big green holiday? I, I it's been interesting. It's been up since you know March of two thousand nine, and I remember actually being in the newsroom with you when you launched it and. Yeah. I, I remember you saying at the time, wow, this is just a whole different kettle of fish because with the Irish Voice, it was a weekly newspaper and, and now it's, right. just, it's just a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week news cycle. And, you know, being on the site to see it, watch it expand, it's almost, uh, 
you could go into such a deep dark hole of just clicking article upon article uh, yeah. of, of of every different kind of political affiliation um recipes uh, so it's 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 really become a central part of uh, of ireland so uh, yeah. tell us a bit about the website and what's uh what's planned for uh for the big green ramp up well anytime i talk to young people who come in occasionally to the offices interns or whatever i say the fundamentals of journalism have not changed in 300 years it's still about talking to people getting their stories writing them down reporting it accurately it's all about the storytelling and I think if you keep that in mind, there's a lot of bells and whistles and a lot of alarms and a lot of things that are extraordinary. But I give you the example of the night that we we launched. We got this massive story um, that Liam Neeson's wife had tragically Absolutely. died. Yes, I remember that. And we had the exclusive on that on our very first night. And I remember the guy saying to me, we're going to break down. There's so many people trying to read the story. But that was a kind of example of what happens when, you know, you're on the ball, you get information, you process a story, you get it up there, you, you prove it's accurate because if you were wrong, you're in deep, deep doo-doo or something like that. And that's what I like to see is just very conscientious, um, sort of thought-provoking journalism that's well-researched. And I don't think there's any mystery to it. You know, you read a book by Hemingway and I always say to my daughter, just read Hemingway and just see how language can be written. And that's what I feel about some of the great journalism things. You read a paper like the New York Times or whatever, it's just a tremendous standard of journalism and Irish Voice, Irish Central, Irish America, we try and do it in the Irish space. I mean, we have a great interview with the new governor of New York, Kathy Hochul coming up on Wednesday, which for the first time really goes back into her background her growing up in Ireland, her family having to leave, arriving in South Buffalo, which was a very Irish place, eight of them living in a two-bedroom house, you know, and then she goes through this transformation where she becomes governor of the of the biggest state, one of the biggest states in the union. So it's stories like that I love to tell, and that'll be the centerpiece story on St. Patrick's Day in terms of this is you, this is your community, this is what people have done a young woman with very little background or financial backing or whatever has ended up as the governor of a very important state so that's that's what I try and focus on amen amen so how how can people get a hold of your books obviously on irishcentral.com they can uh, they can yeah I Amazon <clears throat> has has all the books and also um you, you can just go into a, a disappearing giant bookstore Unfortunately, one of my great regrets, Mike, is just how few bookstores there they are because it's such a rare source of pleasure to go into one and just walk down and pick out a book and browse. I, I feel sorry that the next generation won't have that. It's, it's just not the same. I, I could agree with that. Well, you could probably gather on this uh, on this podcast that uh, Niall and I have been friends for many many years, and uh, we have uh, we can throw a sharp elbow at one another like most Irish. <laughs> Irish friendships uh, do, but all kidding aside, Niall, I just want to thank, thank you for uh, giving me my extraordinary life as a writer. You were the first one that gave me uh, the chance. You gave me the the the, uh, the column space. Uh, you know, one of the proudest moments in my family was to have a Mike Farrer column be on the other side of the page of of, uh, 
uh, Cormac McConnell, who has been just loved by my grandmother. Uh, I remember my uh, my dad sending that home, uh, proudest punch, and uh, it has helped me develop myself as a writer. Um, I know April Drew is now, you know, has her own media conglomerate over That's in right. Ireland. Yeah. Uh, Jim Sheridan. There's been so many uh, Irish Terry voices. George. Yeah, Terry. that Terry George, exactly. So there's been so many yeah. Irish voices that you've launched um, the literary careers and the film careers of over the years that have been on, on the back of yourself and Debbie. And just really from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for uh, being you, such a supporter. You know, you were, you're only as good as the people who work with you and you made a hell of a difference bringing that particular Irish-American type of humor and insight, which broadens everything about the Irish identity so much. I think you did that magnificently and I think you're obviously still doing it. And uh, I look forward to growing with your podcast. Well, wait, wait do you see what I write about you in the blog, though. It's not going to be pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know how it is. You know how it is. We, we, we kiss you and then we kick you. I mean, that's, well, that's how can. an Irish friendship is. Exactly. You're cancelled from now on. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Niall. And uh, God bless and happy St. Patrick's Day in advance. The same to you. And thank you. Thank you for everything. Taste is sponsored by Career Letters. We're in the midst of the great resignation, which means people are leaving their jobs in record numbers. That's great news for job seekers, yet most people aren't prepared to meet the moment of opportunity with the current state of their resume and LinkedIn profile. If you are looking to make a career change, we craft customized resumes and LinkedIn profiles that get you noticed in this digital landscape. For more information, including a blog that covers up-to-date hiring trends and interview tips, visit careerletters.com or like Career Letters LinkedIn page, careerletters.com. You know, this is a food podcast, so we might as well talk a little food here, shall we? And I want to share with you an Irish soda bread recipe that allowed me to come in second in a hotly contested church bake-off for the best Irish soda bread. And that just happened over the weekend. I'm still buzzing about it. So here we go. Three and a half cups of flour, two thirds of a cup of sugar, one teaspoon of salt, one teaspoon of baking soda, one teaspoon of baking powder, one and a half cups of raisins. I'm a little heavy on the pour and the raisins, I gotta tell you, it's usually like two cups. One and a third cup of buttermilk or until it's properly moist, two beaten eggs, four teaspoons of melted butter, one and a half teaspoons of vanilla extract. And that was the secret ingredient, I must say. And then the recipe does call for caraway seeds. I'm not gonna get into that whole debate. You can add them if you want. I never do. What you do is then mix the dry ingredients, you mix the liquid ingredients, you mix together until they're well blended. And I did use a baking mixing machine thing. It's pink, it's downstairs. I can't think of the name of it at the moment. And then you grease the flour dish, bake it at 350 degrees for about 50 to 60 minutes. And I do find sometimes that for whatever reason, it might need a pinch of buttermilk just to make it go really smooth. You wanna have this velvety, velvety mixture in that mixing bowl. And sometimes it does get a little lumpy if you don't have enough 
buttermilk in there. So that's what I do. Slight variation of the recipe. And I actually bake this into a bowl that has Celtic knots in this ceramic bowl so that when you actually bake it in the bowl, it does have Celtic knots on the bottom. So while I did not win best in taste this weekend, I came in second. I definitely won best in show. Tune in next week when we interview Sean Brady, executive chef in Kansas City, Missouri, one of my close friends. This has been another broadcast of Taste that has been produced by my beautiful wife, Barbara. I love you very much, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you.